We're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 2 today, the opening verses 1 through 12, as we continue in our uh, series here in Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom. Today's message is the wise worship the Lord. So if you're at Matthew chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. You may be seated, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much. for this wonderful opportunity uh, that we have to come together to gather on this Lord's Day to hear your word. Uh, Father, this is your message to your people, not mine. And so I ask that you would speak through my words. Uh, may these words be glorifying to you and from you. And Father, may we be uh, more than just hearers of, hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. Uh, may this message today uh, have an effect on our lives, on our hearts. May they lead us closer to you, draw us closer to you, and give us a better understanding of who you are, your love for us, and your kingship, really, over uh, all of the heavens and the earth. Be with us now. Uh, May your spirit help us and guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have come to Matthew chapter 2, and this text, which is a little bit out of order for our uh, 2022 holiday season. We're still seven days away from Christmas. Um, so if you guys didn't catch that, seven days away from Christmas. I don't know if shopping's done and all of that. Um, but where we're at today in the message takes place just shortly after the birth of the king. Again, this message is titled The Wise Worship the King. And we've been learning the last few weeks as we started this book of Matthew about the gospel of the kingdom and who this king is. We've looked at his genealogy and we've understood uh, his lineage and and why he is worthy to be king and how that all works. And we have now come to the birth and really some of the first people we're going to look at, some of the first people to worship the king. Uh, How many of you are fans of nativity scenes at this time of year? Anyone have nativity scenes? Most of the people. Uh, Yes, we have quite a few in our home. We actually have so many uh, that we can't put them all out. Uh, My wife said, there's no way, so we just put them back in the box and back in the garage is uh, where they sit for at least another year until maybe we get a bigger home. Uh, We have another child on the way, as you can see, so our home is rapidly shrinking as we're trying to move things around and prepare. Um, Safe to say there's no room at the Carpenter Inn uh, this year. 
uh, but hopefully enough for this child that will be born very soon. Uh, but I bring that up because most of the time we can think of this scene with Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus in the manger, and we see the shepherd and all the animals around him, uh, around them, and then we see uh, the wise men. But most likely the wise men were not there at that time. So your little nativities, I hate to break your warm, fuzzy feeling, but they're not exactly scripturally accurate. So when you go home after today, you can throw the wise men out and just leave everything else <laughs> intact. Um, Luke's gospel actually gives a little more detail on the actual scene, uh, what had happened in Luke 2. And an angel appears to the Lord, or excuse me, to the shepherds, and they speak to them. And it says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went in haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So safe to say that was that day or that night, uh, when the Lord was born. And so the shepherds, of course, appear to have been there at that time, but the wise men, not so much. And as we look at the opening verse here, verse one, it tells us, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. After uh, is the key word there. The Greek uh, is the idea that, and then this took place. So there was some time after. Uh, we don't really know exactly how much time uh, most people say it's at a minimum of several weeks. Um, ceremonially, ceremonially, through the law, uh, when a woman had a child, she was unclean for a period of time and had to go through a purification process. And so the fact that, that everyone was around her and the Magi came back in around Mary means it was at least several weeks after. Uh, but some scholars put it as far out as around two years. And many of you know the story that when Herod finds out about this, he sends out an order to slay and kill all of the babies two years of age and under. That was based probably uh, around the time that the Magi saw the star. And that's how they were able to figure out that two years. So sometime in that period, this is around uh, 4 BC uh, is probably when this took, took place. It mentions Herod, uh, the king. This is Herod the Great, or the first Herod uh, to the throne. There were subsequently many Herods that came after him, uh, most of them his sons and other further descendants after that. There was uh, Herod Archelaus, Herod II, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and you'll read a little bit about them at various points throughout the New Testament. Now, this Herod was uh, well-known throughout the land for a couple of reasons, both good and bad. The good side, people really revered his kingship and the fact that he was a, a conquering king, a warrior king. He also uh, was known for these great uh, building projects that he had done. He uh, built the city of Caesarea, uh, commonly called Caesarea Maritime. It's right on the, the coast in Israel. You can go visit the ruins today, actually. It's a beautiful place. But he also built several fortresses. You might be familiar with Masada uh, near the Dead Sea and uh, Herodium, which is really not too far from Jerusalem. And most people say that he was so uh, bent on holding on to his power and, and keeping it, and he was so afraid of losing that power that he built these impressive fortresses, uh, basically to try to hold on to everything he can, to keep his grip, if you will, on his kingdom and on his throne. And so keep that in mind a little bit uh, as we move into the rest of this story. Uh, he had at least 10 wives that we know of. One of them he had killed. Uh, and at least several of his sons killed, at least two or three. Caesar Augustus said of him, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. And the idea being that he practiced Judaism and he uh, stuck to a kosher diet. So he wasn't gonna kill the pigs to eat them, so they were probably pretty safe. But if you were one of his sons, you might wanna sleep with one eye open because he might be coming for you thinking that you're gonna steal his throne. 
Uh, he even had part of his will, interestingly enough, uh, that when he died, he was so afraid that no one was going to uh, like maybe worship or, well, not worship, but mourn him per se or, or come to his funeral services. Part of his will stated that when he died, uh, they were supposed to bring all of the uh, Jewish elders, a lot of the, the religious uh, priests and such, and they were actually supposed to be killed right there at his um, ceremony with the idea that at least there would be mourning taking place. So if they weren't mourning for him, they were mourning for someone else. Um, but that's the kind of guy that we're dealing with. Thankfully, his children never carried out uh, the wish of that will, by the way. So the rest of verse one says, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now there's some debate as to who these men were. Uh, we assume they're men, by the way. Uh, most likely they're men, but maybe not. Um, here's a few thoughts and really kind of two categories that they would fall into. One would be this is someone that practiced some sort of dark art. This is someone that dabbled in the occult, conjuring spirits, uh, a sorcerer, something of that nature. They were really kind of in touch with this evil spiritual side. They would do signs and wonders, etc. cetera. Uh, they're mentioned in Daniel chapter two, actually. If you're taking notes, you don't have to turn there, but uh, you know that Daniel and others were carried away uh, during the Babylonian captivity. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this is Daniel 2, 1 and 2. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the kings gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers and the sorcerers. That's our, our Greek word, magos, which is the word magi. And the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So again, overarching ideas. These are ones who practice some sort of dark arts, dark spiritual arts. The other side could be someone that's categorized uh, almost today we could think of more like a scientist. This could be someone that's, uh, that was well-respected for their knowledge in arts like astrology or medicine or maybe even spirituality. And this is someone that would have been uh, looked to to have this kind of supreme wisdom. And maybe people flocked from, from far and wide to come inquire of these men and to get this sort of wisdom, but most likely with a little bit of a, a spiritual bent to it. So as we think of the idea that maybe they were astrologers, that would most likely make sense as they followed a star in this particular case. Um, so maybe they were waiting, they were expecting for this star. Uh, I know that I can myself think of times where I've gone out and I've seen stars maybe on a, a nice dark night with not a lot of city lights and you can see beautiful bright stars and I've seen them before, but never once have I decided, you know what, I'm going to follow that star. So we don't know exactly what happened and what this star is. As we work our way and we get into verse 9, we'll see a little more about the fact that this seems to be a supernatural star that they followed. So back to these uh, magi again, these were people that... Um, maybe were public figures in their day that, that many people looked to. Many people came to them seeking wisdom, and it would have been rare for them coming to seek out someone else. We can think today of people like the Dalai Lama, maybe, that you know, people from all over, even different religions sometimes, will flock to hear the wisdom of, of men like that. And there's many more that we could think of. And it says that they arrived from the east. So where is that exactly? Well, we don't really know. The scripture doesn't tell us. If you go east of Israel, today you hit modern-day Jordan and Syria, even parts of Saudi Arabia. You go further east, Iraq, Iran, etc. Um, back then, these would have been uh, the territories known as Parthia, Persia, Babylon, or even the kingdom of Sheba, which would have been down south, uh, modern-day Saudi Arabia or Yemen. But we must confess that we really don't know exactly who these men are. There's a little bit of a, a mystery as to who they are. And maybe that's okay. 
That might not be the important part to know exactly who this specific person was that came to worship because the focus is that they came to worship. But an important thing to note is these were not Jewish people. These were not believers. These were Gentiles. And God chose to use these Gentiles to come and be, again, some of the first people to worship this new king. Now, there's this idea that their wisdom was the wisdom of the world. And it was a big contrast to the wisdom of the Bible. We know that there's a big difference. It was said that the wisdom of the Hebrews was set apart from other wisdom in the ancient days, namely by this, the fear of the Lord. That was the distinction between the types of wisdoms that we see. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Proverbs 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 1 Corinthians 1 and the New Testament picks up a little bit more on this. It says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And we can sum it up in saying that Wisdom, brothers and sisters, begins with the fear of and the knowledge of God. And we're going to see these men go on not just a physical journey as they travel to uh, see where this star is leading them to this newborn king, but we're going to see them go on a spiritual journey as well. And I have what I think is kind of a a three-step process or a three-step journey. So if you're taking notes, step one is that they came to seek Jesus. They came to seek Jesus. Verse 1 continues, they arrived in Jerusalem saying, verse 2, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So again, what do we make of such a star? Natural, supernatural, what could it be? Um, These men presumably traveled hundreds, if not thousands of miles, if they were from some of the regions that I described. So there must have been something special about this star that would cause them to take that journey. Again, I've never followed after a star that I thought was particularly bright, and I would venture to say that none of you have ever done that as well. But was there something else here? Was there maybe a dream that they had? Did maybe another angel appear to them, as we see countless times in the New Testament? We simply don't know. But all in all, this star was leading them. This star was was guiding them. Uh, we know that the star probably didn't have a, it wasn't like a big marquee banner that said, you know, newborn king this way, and they just kind of decided to, to march and follow it. It looked a little bit different. An interesting thought is that if these wise men came from the region of Babylon, uh, this would have been about five, 600 years after the Babylonian captivity, uh, where the, the Israelites were carried away. And I referenced Daniel a little bit ago. And in Daniel uh, 2.48, it says, Then the king promoted Daniel, this is after he was able to uh, interpret the dreams, and gave him many gifts and made him a ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. He was put in charge over the wise men of that region, over that area. So it very well could be that this is, again, five, six hundred years after that happened, that the wisdom of the Old Testament and the prophets and the God of the Jewish people was known. Daniel 9 has the 70 weeks prophecy, and it may well be that these wise men actually knew that prophecy. They knew exactly when and where, maybe even to the day that the Messiah was to be born. 
And it could have been passed down through generations. These wise men could have been waiting and expecting to see this star, to see the, the fulfillment of this promise and the birth of this king. And here it seems to have arrived. He probably left Daniel some sort of a legacy behind, clearly. And it's kind of an important thing to think about for us. What kind of legacy do we leave behind in our lives? Here was a Jewish person in a Gentile land, and many, many hundreds of years later, his influence was possibly still there. And they came, the end of verse 2, with the intent to worship him. Charles Spurgeon, in a commentary, says this, It is a marvelous thing that the Magi from afar should know that a great king was born and should come from so great a distance to do him homage. For the world's wise men are not often found at the feet of Jesus. When wise men seek Jesus, they are wise indeed. It's the words of Spurgeon. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Remember we talked about Herod's kind of paranoia and holding on to this tight grip of his, his throne and his kingdom. So here it's now coming out. He's troubled. He doesn't know what's going on. Uh, the Greek word used here for troubled is the same as in John 5. And you'll remember in that story it, uh, where Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And it says that the pools were stirred up. And at that point, they would, they would lower people into the water to be healed. Well, that same word stirred up, speaking of the water, is actually the same word used here for the trouble that was in Herod's heart. So this, this physical agitation or stirring of the waters is maybe a little picture of the inner turmoil and agitation that was going on in Herod. Why was this? Well, he was afraid. He knew that his kingdom was maybe going to be overthrown. There was a new king born, and it wasn't one of his sons. And that's typically the way that, uh, that kingdoms advanced and progressed, right, as your son took the throne. But in this particular case, he knew that it wasn't his son, it was someone else. He was worried, he was troubled. And it says all Jerusalem with him as well. Now, why would all Jerusalem be shook up over three wise men who came into town asking a simple question? Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? And that leads us to another famous error of our nativity scenes. There were probably not three wise men. It's commonly thought that because of the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But if you read uh, records of some of these wise men and, and maybe how they traveled, again, there's some debate as to the exact people group and exact region they came from. But most of the men like this would have traveled in large caravans, 50 to 100 or more, would have been sort of an entourage, and they would have had uh, servants and the like. They would have been this uh, maybe priestly class or kingly class of person as well. And so it wouldn't have been uncommon for them to have servants and all these other things coming with them. So you imagine this large group of Gentiles coming into Jerusalem and asking, hey, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Uh, might lead to a little bit of trouble. It could also be that King Herod was so troubled that he basically made it difficult for everyone else. I said earlier, if the king ain't happy, no one's happy, right? So if he's worried and he's not sure what's going on, that's going to pass down to the subjects and to the rest of the people in Jerusalem. So what does Herod do when this happens? Well, he calls for backup. Verse 4 says, Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." That's a uh, quote, two quotes from the Old Testament, Micah 5.2, if you're taking notes, and 2 Samuel 5.2, sort of a combination of each of those. So it's interesting to note that Herod has no clue what the scripture says here. 
No clue. And think that this is perhaps even as much as two years after the birth of Jesus, doesn't seem to know that there's a Messiah born, doesn't seem to know that there's this new king. The chief priests and scribes, I'm assuming, were around him as well. But we talked about in the beginning this idea of the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And true wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. And Herod didn't have that. All the other kings of Israel in the past, there were good and bad, as you know, many, many, but uh, the ones that uh, were good and did good in the sight of the Lord were ones that feared the Lord, obeyed his commands, followed what he asked them to do. And I think Herod probably had every opportunity to be a wise king and to be a wise leader if he would have just submitted himself to the Lord and he would have started with that, but he did it. He had his own interests in mind and therefore he was made to be a fool, if you will. So he had to go and he had to ask of these scribes and of these chief priests. The irony is that it's Gentile believers that came in from out of town to alert the Jewish people that their Messiah, that their king had been born. They didn't know it. They didn't see it. We're not sure exactly why. It doesn't tell us. We know later that the Jews would be, or excuse me, uh, previously, the Jews had been considered uh, ones that were extremely hard of heart and they had turned their back on God and maybe this is just another case. It says that out of you shall come forth a ruler. Uh, the Greek word for ruler is uh, often translated other places in the New Testament as governor. And so we could actually read this verse like this, out of you, Bethlehem, shall come forth a governor who will shepherd my people, Israel. And if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been going through Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And we've seen the famous prophecy speaking of Jesus that the government will rest upon his shoulders. And to his government, there will be no end. And so a beautiful fulfillment of that picture as well. And so what's Herod's response after the priests and the uh, the priests and the scribes came in verse seven. It says, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Notice it says he secretly called the Magi. Remember last week, uh, that week, that word actually appeared. When Joseph found out that Mary was with child, he planned her to send her away, but how? Secretly. He was a righteous man. He didn't want to disgrace her. Herod's the exact opposite of that. He called for them secretly, but he was not a righteous man. We know that he had another motive. We know that he had an evil intent. We know that he wanted this king gotten rid of, killed, exterminated. He didn't want that threat any longer. So why does he do it? He does it secretly. The Gospel of John tells us that everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And so Herod, knowing that this was an evil intent and with uh, evil purposes, most likely called these magi secretly. He didn't want the word to get out to others because if word did get out that there was another king, that there was a new king, the new king of the Jews, what would happen? Others would go worship him, but he couldn't afford to have that happen. So he called the magi secretly in a plan to exterminate him. Now, I know that it's beyond our imagination today to think of uh, you know, a wise or, or famous person that would profess to believe in God and want to worship God, but yet do it for their own personal gain or their own political power. That maybe a leader of our nation, a political leader, might profess to be a Christian and then support some sort of um, legislation to murder children. 
It's another sermon. We'll do that for another day. But it's kind of ironic that that's what was going on here. And that was the plan that Herod had later. But beyond this kind of physical struggle that he had for this actual kingdom, this actual power, there's a deeper spiritual picture and a spiritual uh, battle that was going on. And you're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau begins in Genesis 25, or that's at least when they come on the scene. And these two brothers that were uh, you know, at war with each other, hated each other, so to speak. And Jesus and Herod both come from those two lines. Jesus, of course, from Jacob. But Herod was from Idumea, a region that descended from the Edomites. And the Edomites were uh, the, the lineage and the children of Esau. And so just like the actual brothers, Jacob and Esau, had this fighting in this war, so that continued throughout the generations. And in a sense, Herod and Jesus have a little bit of this war. Herod is seeking to exterminate Jesus. A commentator writes this, for us, that contrast can serve to symbolize the internal contrast between the part of the inner self which willingly and joyfully accepts the lordship of Christ as our king, and then the darker side of ourself, which firmly and persistently rejects his right to rule. He says, scoff not at Herod until you have acknowledged the Herod in yourself. So step one, they came seeking to find Jesus, and now they've arrived at step two. Or excuse me, they came seeking Jesus. Step two, they find Jesus. Verse nine says, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So it says they continued to follow this star. Lots of questions would arise from that. Has this star been in the sky and has ceased to have gone out? Did it maybe disappear and then it reappeared again? What's going on? There's been countless people to try to uh, maybe explain away what was going on as not supernatural, but natural. And they'll say, well, it was maybe just, you know, the weather at that certain time and the star appeared to be brighter than it actually was because there were no clouds. Or, uh, some scholars have said it was Halley's Comet. I think they first discovered it in like 6 BC. And so now if this is like 4 BC, Halley's Comet could have been around and it was leading them to the exact place where Jesus was. I personally don't buy that. I think this was just a supernatural appearance of light. We know that that is how our God seems to appear, correct? We can think of the burning bush and we can think of a pillar of fire. We can think of so many things that the Lord seems to appear in light. And so he is leading these people, uh, guiding them, uh, almost, almost as if the Holy Spirit were guiding them. And they decided to follow this star. They decided to follow it to the city of Bethlehem. So we can wonder, were the wise men the only ones who came to see it? Story doesn't really tell us any differently. It says just the wise men, but could others see it? Maybe it was just the wise men that had uh, the ability to see it. Maybe others saw it and just decided, nah, it's not that important. I don't need to do anything about it. We know the own Jewish people decided not to do anything. They, they stayed in Bethlehem. So the men came seeking, but they have now found. And I think there's an application for us and maybe just a time to kind of reflect on some of the most simple questions. Well, first would be, have you found Jesus? Have you found him? And if so, where were you when you first heard of him? Where did you come from, as it were? Just like these wise men came out of the East. Where did you come from? What was your past and your background? 
And maybe even ask yourself, what was the, the light, figuratively speaking, the star that brought you to him? What were those circumstances? Beautiful thing that I was able to reflect on this past week of study and pray that you would be able to do that as well. Now, with that question, I will say that there's not some secret mission that you have to go follow this star to find him, right? It's, we know that it's uh, much more simple than that. It's not that difficult. But with the idea of seeking and finding God, there's also the sense that God first sought us before we decided to seek him. He's always been there seeking after us. A few examples, John chapter four and the woman at the well. It just so happened that Jesus was there waiting at the well when the woman showed up and asked her to give him a drink. Acts chapter eight, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip just happened to be there on that road, traveling right there at that same time. Why? Because an angel appeared and had him be there at that specific time. And he was able to uh, explain the scroll of Isaiah to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he was baptized there immediately in the water. We can think of the next chapter, Acts 9, Saul's on the road to Damascus, um, certainly not seeking Jesus, if we know the history of Saul, but what happened? The Lord had been seeking him, and the Lord had other plans, and he appeared to him and called Saul to himself, and he later became Paul. Those are just a few examples, but the Bible is full of many others that seem to say that God first sought us, and that's a beautiful picture. And so in the case of the wise men, it's interesting to think that maybe they didn't come of their own volition. They could have been maybe waiting. They could have known this prophecy and maybe been expecting, but then the star appeared in the east and they decided to follow it. They walked in obedience to follow it for sure, but did they really come with the intent of seeking in the first place? It's an interesting question to ponder. Notice verse 10 says that when they came, they re- excuse me, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I just had to ask myself, did I do that when I came to know the Lord? And I think the answer is yes. And I think it is for many of you as well. I know some of you personally, and as I look out, I know that that might be your story. That when you found him, you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Amen? That was a weak amen. There's not a lot of joy in this room <laughs> this morning. Wow, amen, okay. So why joy? Not just because there's a new king. I mean, at least the history of kings prior to this one, they don't work out so well. They're here today, gone tomorrow. Kingdoms don't last. This is the only one that's an eternal kingdom. But up to this point, kingdoms didn't last. So why such a joy? Well, in the famous words of Linus from Charlie Brown Christmas, the great theologian, he says this, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's Luke 2.10, by the way, not just Linus. But he does have a cute voice when he speaks that. You know, it's kind of a classic. We, I, I watched that yesterday with my daughter for the first time ever that she got to see that. So that was a, a beautiful time. But anyway, it's actually amazing too, by the way, to see the way the gospel is portrayed. You know that most of the uh, edits, if you will, of that that show that are played today, they basically remove any reference to scripture, God, the Bible, Jesus, anything. It's pretty much gone. But if you're able to get a hold of one of the, the DVDs and the original versions, it's pretty impressive to see uh, what gospel content was in there back then originally. And that, of course, went out to you know, the wider public uh, audience. So get the DVD. Don't watch it on TV anymore. I don't even know. Actually, I think I heard they're not showing it on TV for the first time ever this year. Someone can correct me, but I thought I heard that. It was the first time that it wasn't even on broadcast TV. I think it was a CBS thing originally. 
Anyway. But the important point is that it wasn't just a mere king born that day. It was a savior. That Luke 2.10 verse. For today is born to you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And so the wise men may have known that. Maybe they knew it before they got there. Maybe they figured it out after and they decided to worship. But they realized that it was their savior, not just a king. And we can think that God has saved me and he has saved you. And he has saved anyone that would come to him. Amen? What a beautiful thing that we have and what a great thing that we can celebrate this season. So they came to seek Jesus, then they found Jesus, and now the third step, they came to worship Jesus. Verse 11 says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, it says that they came into the house, which is a little bit further proof that this happened after the time of the actual birth. It's not the baby lying in a manger anymore. It seems like Mary and Joseph have at least temporarily settled in this area in Bethlehem. And it says, upon entering, they saw the child and Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. After first service, someone pointed out that every time that Mary and and the child um, are listed together, the child is always first. So they saw the child and Mary, his mother. Joseph isn't mentioned, by the way. He's left out of this account. And they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. And you'll notice, again, they saw the child and Mary, but they worshiped him. They didn't worship them. That's an important thing to keep in mind. They didn't worship her, but they worshiped him. They worshiped the child, the son of God. And they fell to the ground, it says, and then they worshiped him. The word worship in uh, Greek is proskuneo, and it has the idea of bowing down or prostrating oneself on the ground. And I feel like it's double emphasized here because it says they bowed down and then they worshiped by bowing down is the way we could sort of see this. That's just the form of how it happened. And uh, there's even some uh, verses where it seems to imply that when you would uh, bow down and worship in that way, proskuneo, that it would also involve even the kissing of feet the kissing of a, or touching of a hem of a garment, like Jesus, or even the kissing of a hand. These would have been all uh, forms of worship of, of proskuneo. So remember that these men, though, are potentially this priestly class. They're potentially this, this kingly class of people, well-respected leaders and thinkers. And what did they do? They humbled themselves and they bowed down. They prostrated themselves and they worshiped this true king. If they were kings themselves, they realized that their kingdom and their kingship was nothing in the, relight, in the light of his. And unfortunately today, I think there's a lot of well-respected leaders or political figures that would refuse to bow down or to kneel. In their own wisdom, in the wisdom of the world, they think that they're too good or that they know enough. And that Christianity and that, that eh, that's, that's not real. That's just a bunch of myths and, and fairy tales. And it's, it's just really a sad thing that in this day and age, we don't have enough true leaders acknowledging who the true leader is. As well as that thought that they are wise in their own eyes, a lot of times they don't seem to think that worship is okay. They think that it's a form of weakness, but the worship of the king belongs to the truly wise, amen? It says that they came in pure adoration with hearts to worship. Notice they didn't come with a list of wants or needs. They didn't come seeking to see what Jesus could do for them, to heal them or do some miraculous power. Here we see just the the full humanity side of Jesus. 
We don't know for sure, but I'm assuming there was no halo around him as he's, you know, there in the house with his parents. This is just true humanity. And they came to worship him. Interestingly enough, when Jesus was still in the womb and Mary and Mary went to go visit Elizabeth and the baby, John the Baptist, jumped inside her, her womb and she said, you know, the, the Lord has, has come to visit me, my Lord, referring to this yet unborn baby inside the stomach of Mary. Elizabeth acknowledged who he was in a pure human state. There was no source or sense of divinity uh, coming off of him at that point in the womb and probably here was the same case. But they came again with just pure adoration, pure hearts to worship. We can think of John 4.24 there on the wall. God is spirit and those who worship him must do it in spirit and in truth. And that spirit is talking about the spirit inside of a man. It's not referring to the Holy Spirit. So our, our inner spirit, our innermost being is what God requires and what God looks for with true worship. True wise worship isn't about a secret formula. It's not about a specific prayer, about a certain way that you you pray, or it wasn't even about the bowing down. That could have been something that maybe was just a natural reaction of these men when they got there. They could have been just so filled with awe that that was their natural response. You know, whenever an angel appears, people hit the deck. You've heard that said. Maybe that was it. They just bowed down and prostrated and started worshiping. But it's not about the exact way we worship, but it really is about the heart. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And that's exactly the way these wise men came to worship in spirit and truth and really in humility to humble themselves and to bow down. And notice who didn't come to worship in this way. Herod, the priests, the scribes. They were just some six miles away, Jerusalem to Bethlehem, a six-mile journey. Not much for the wise men. They've already traveled hundreds or even thousands of miles at this point to get there. So what's another six, right, when you've already traveled thousands? But the religious leaders, the ones who should have known, either didn't know or they knew and they refused to go. And that seems to be the case. And these Gentiles came and said, hey, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? The scribes came and said, here's the prophecy. This is where it's going to take place. They heard about the star. They knew what had happened. And they go, ah, six miles? Nah, I'm not going to go. And we can look at them and we can sort of, you know, even chastise them, but... Sometimes we have to look at us too. What do we do? Do we go out of our way to worship the Lord? We have a room full of people here today, which is beautiful to see. And I assume and I pray that most of you are here because you have the intent to worship the Lord. That's why you came here. I know that some of you, though, may have just come with a family or friend. Someone invited you. Uh, maybe you just come to church because that's what you do every Sunday and that's your routine. But God really wants worship. John uh, 5 tells the story of uh, Jesus talking to some of the religious leaders and really to a wider audience of the Jewish people. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. But it is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. That verse popped into my mind this week as I think about this. These religious leaders were literally physically unwilling to come to him. They were stuck in Jerusalem searching the scriptures, thinking that they might have eternal life, and they were unwilling to come so that they may have life. And sadly, we have many today who won't come to him. Those that reject the truth, that suppress it in unrighteousness, people that professing to be wise have become fools. And these religious men, scribes and religious leaders professing to be wise, 
knew who the Messiah was and they couldn't make that journey. What a shame. Now remember that those who rejected him weren't Gentiles. Again, like I said, they were the religious people of the day. They knew the evidence. They knew what was, what was to be found. They knew what had happened. They knew he was born and they still refused. And I mentioned we have some today that won't come to worship the Lord out of whatever reason. Maybe they say it's too far. Oh, I can't make it to church. Oh, it's a little too inconvenient. I don't have time. The football game's on. I was talking to Pastor Michael after the service and he said there was, uh, I think, two games yesterday where it was just pouring down snow and stadiums packed, sold out people, shouting and yelling and worshiping, if you will, these teams. How many people do you think would come to church today if we didn't have a roof on this building and it started to snow? I wouldn't be looking at this many faces. I've told this story before that uh, about 10 years ago, I was in the Philippines and uh, we went to church and, you know, we're excited. We're getting ready to go worship that day. And we find out church is like five miles away and we're, we're hiking, we're hoofing it there. Like, okay, well, I guess this is it. You know, we're on a mission trip, so we got to have our heart in the right place. So we set out and uh, this was some rough terrain and just horrible weather. If anyone's ever been to the Philippines or from the Philippines, it's like they have two seasons, like hot and rainy or cold and rainy, but it's just always raining. We were in the hot and rainy season, so it was very humid and quite uncomfortable. And so we, uh, we make our way there finally after hours and hours uh, of walking. And we actually got on the back of a motorcycle at one point in time and they carried us up a, uh, a hill and I got on, we sent the girls first, okay? The girls went first, and then the motorcycles came back to pick us up, and we're going up the hill, and my motorcycle, for whatever reason, was a little underpowered, and I was told I had to get off, because I was a little too big. And so, I think he was referring to I was so tall that uh, the motorcycle didn't have enough power. But we ended up getting to this church, um, you know, hours later. This is an all-day affair. I mean, this was a couple hours to get there. And then we're there and it starts to pour down rain. This is part of the story I've told before. No roof on the church building, cinder block building with cutouts for windows and doors, but there were no windows and doors, just holes. We had a chicken come through the service. And it, it just poured rain. And people worshiped. They didn't go home. They didn't complain. They just stood up and they were singing and they were praising and they were worshiping. And these people were just praying that they could get a roof on their building. That's what they were praying for. And uh, I don't even know why such a little tangent on that. But I think today it's just so easy for us to see worship as not a priority, to see coming to church as not a priority because it's difficult or it's inconvenient. And you guys are all here and I'm not trying to beat you up. So we'll leave it at that. But maybe we need a little bit of an encouragement in that area, even myself included. I will say that I didn't even have the happiest of hearts that day. Here I am leading a mission trip, right? And trying to convince, you know, 10 other people, yeah, we're going to go hike five miles to church. On the inside, I'm like, okay, it's 105 degrees and humid. And, but we made it and it was really a beautiful time. Probably I can easily count on this hand, probably one of the most impactful worship experiences or church services that I've ever been a part of. But again, I, I pray the reason that you're here today is truly to worship the Lord and for no other reason than that. The rest of verse 11 says, uh, then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I think we commonly believe that they came bearing these gifts, maybe with that thought or intent far ahead of time. 
But as I was reading through and studying, it just hit me a little differently this time. That, that might not have been the case. We think back to our nativity scenes and we see the little gift they have, a little wrapping paper and a bow, you know, and they're handing it. And I, I don't know that that was the case because it says they opened up their treasure. And that Greek word can refer to a treasure box or a collection of treasure or a storeroom or even a, a coffer where funds are kept. I'll put it in more modern English and say their wallet. They opened up their wallet and they gave to the Lord, so to speak. And I really believe that this was out of their heart. And I started thinking about if I was going to go maybe to some party or an event, and it was someone that I hadn't known, hadn't yet met, just like these wise men come in to see Jesus, I might go get a gift and wrap it up and bring it to honor someone because that's just what we do in our culture, right? We bring a gift. But what if I came without that gift ahead of time? I just knew, hey, can't wait to go meet this person and, you know, see who they are. And after meeting them and interacting with them, out of just the overflow of my heart and out of an abundance, I just took out my wallet and I just said, here, this, this is for you. Do you see how that's a little bit different than having this premeditated idea of I'm going to go buy a gift? Because I can have X amount of dollars in my wallet and then just go and you know, spend a dollar on a gift and it looks nice. But is that really the true overflow out of my heart? I don't know. I think that this is what happened though with these wise men. They opened up out of their treasures and they freely gave to the Lord. And I was kind of thinking that the posture of their bodies and their hearts sort of figuratively matched the posture of their wallet or their pocketbook, as it were. They were willing to lay down everything and give to him. Did they figuratively or literally give him everything? We don't know. They gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave things that were of value. What percentage of it did they keep for themselves? We don't know, and I don't think that really matters. But look at what they gave him. They gave him some of the best gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's interesting to think that these wise men were not so concerned with storing up for themselves treasures on earth, but maybe treasures in heaven. In Matthew 19, Jesus, speaking to the rich, uh, excuse me, the rich young ruler says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And then you will have for yourself treasures in heaven. I wrote in my notes that that rich young ruler, he was unwilling to give freely and he missed out on what God wanted to give freely to him. But it wasn't so with the wise men. They came maybe even realizing uh, before the words of Colossians 2, 3 were written that in him, Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They were willing to lay down their wisdom and their treasures at the feet of Jesus for his wisdom and for his treasures. And so the gifts, gold, a sign of royalty and really an acknowledgement of his kingship. Gold represents our treasure. When we give our earthly treasure, we put Jesus upon the throne that materialism and possessions try to occupy in our life. And then frankincense, the hardened sap of a a tree, the balsam tree, uh, often used for temple service, was used in the uh, incense that was offered. One of our great gifts for our Lord is our worship, our prayer, our spending of time in his word. And then finally, myrrh, which is another sap of another tree. It's commonly used in anointing oils for service specifically in the temple, but also even at burials. And remember in John 19, it was used to anoint his body before burial. Our final verse, verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And so Herod, of course, had this evil plot to kill this child, this new king. And we'll see that as we uh, dive into our next study in Matthew. 
But the wise men were warned in a dream. Isn't that interesting? They're continuing to be led by the Lord, but they're also continuing to be obedient and to listen. They had been commissioned by Herod, a man known for killing his own wife and several of his own children, to go and find the king and report back. And so by leaving and going another way and kind of skirting around him, that probably put themselves in a little bit of danger. Hopefully you can see that. But they decided that ultimately they weren't going to listen to Herod. They had two kings they could, they could worship, if you will, two kings they could listen to, Herod and Jesus. And we can say that they clearly chose the better. And so they left home for a different way, choosing not to return to Jerusalem. And I have the question for us. What about us? Who have we decided to worship? Is it the true king, the king of kings? Or have we decided to worship kings of the world, lowercase k? Kings of money or power, status, pleasure, whatever it is, we can usually seek to go our own way. But I hope that you have made the decision to worship. But maybe you're still in the seeking phase. Or maybe you've just found who the Lord is. Maybe it's even today. You're here you're watching or you're listening and you've you found the Lord for the first time after he found you. But now that you found him, you have a response. Are you going to worship him? Are you going to bow down? Figuratively, what's the posture of your heart? Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you so much for uh, just this beautiful time together in your word. Thank you for the privilege it is to be in your house. Lord, I think of a a beautiful church building that we are blessed with, with a roof and nice, soft, comfy pews and heater and so many other things, Lord, that we are grateful for. And I pray that we wouldn't take those things for granted. I pray, Lord, that we would seek to honor you and to worship you in all things. And may the worship of our heart and the posture of our heart be acceptable to you. Pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and that we would seek to glorify you in all things. As we think of this Advent season and uh, Christmas just one week away celebrating your birth, Father, what a blessing, what a privilege that to us has been born, not just a king, but a savior. That you yourself, God, came down, God in the flesh, to be our sacrifice, to save us from our sins, to bring us back into relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that many, many of us here would be in the stage of worship. But if there's those that are seeking, if there's those that are uh, maybe just finding, uh, maybe you realize you found the Lord today. He's here. He's been seeking you, but he's here. He's everywhere, really. But he's here, and he's called you today for this purpose. We're told in the book of Isaiah to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near. And the idea is that there will be a time where he won't be found and he won't be near. And we don't know what will happen to us today or tomorrow. And so I pray that if you haven't put your trust in the Lord and decided to humble yourself and to worship him, that you would do that, that you would turn to him, you would cry out and ask him to save you, repent, turn away from your sins and, and turn to walk into a new life of worship, wise worship to our King. Be with uh, the rest of us here, Lord, all of the brothers and sisters, strengthen and encourage us over this next week and over this holiday season. May we be open to being ambassadors of your gospel. May we take it and share it with all those that we come into contact with, friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers. Father, help us to do your kingdom work here on earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.